Welcome to Happiness 2.02 podcast. I'm your host, John Tuckums, founder, author, World Government Summit participant, and Forbes featured TEDx speaker, an inquisitive human who loves root knowledge. Happiness 2.02 is a mental health show for entrepreneurs that provides the full human cognition and the full breathing oxygen tools to rapidly shift states of mind and increase energy. Podcast guests include organization founders, world-renowned executives, MDs, PhDs, and remarkable leaders who have incredible stories and are helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen. You're listening to Happiness 2.02. This is your host, John Tuckums. You're listening to episode 19 with Dr. Louis Ignaro. Louis is a keynote speaker, is Professor Emeritus of Pharmacology at the UCLA School of Medicine's Department of Molecular and Medical Pharmacology, and is a Nobel Prize winner in physiology or medicine. While you're listening to this podcast, if anything stands out to you as thought-provoking and remarkable, take a screenshot and write down what you've heard from Lou. Post the insight on social media, text the idea to a friend, or email what you've learned to a family member. Get this information out there. Without further ado, episode 19 of Happiness 2.02 podcast with Dr. Louis Ignaro. Lou, time is a finite resource. Underline everything you do across your life, your leadership, your awards, your speaking engagements. Why do you do what you do? Ultimately, what drives you at your core? Well, I mean, there are so many things that drive me uh, at my core. This all started when, when I was a child, a fairly young child, I would say, in elementary school. I mean, I was always a, a driven to accomplish something. I always had to find something to do. My parents would tell me to please sit down and keep quiet and stop asking questions. But <laughs> I couldn't do that. I mean, I was always motivated to accomplish something, uh, regardless of what it was. And one of my biggest skills was my technical skills. I would love to take apart different clocks that my dad would bring home. Mm. He was a carpenter. He would bring the clocks home from homes, hotels, other buildings where they didn't want the clocks anymore, but they were working. And so I would simply take them apart and put them back together. At first, it was difficult, but after a while, uh, I got the knack of it. And it's just something that I, I wanted to do. I didn't know whether... I just wanted to keep my mind occupied or, or whether I, I felt this was a challenge, you know, when I had to uh, put them back together again. And my biggest satisfaction out of that was with one clock, uh, I put it all together and it was working perfectly. And I noticed that there were two parts on the desk, which I, mm. had, I put in. So that made me feel pretty good, uh, you know, about that. But I, I, uh, these are the things that, that drive me. It's, it's questions that I have. I, I've come up with so many questions at a young age and also in my developing career. At the age of six or seven years old, I would ask my, my parents or my uh, uh, grade school teacher in the first grade elementary school, uh, does the universe have an end or does it not have an end? Mm. And we would get into these endless conversations and some would say, well, my parents couldn't help me because they were completely uneducated immigrants from Italy. They, they never went to school. In fact, I hardly spoke English until I got into elementary school and then they were forced to speak English. But I would always ask questions like, you know, is there an end to the universe? And if there is, what is that end? Is there anything on the other side? And so on and so forth. And actually, uh, uh, that question still drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. Even after reading some of the works of Albert Einstein, I, uh, I'm still puzzled. But uh, whether it's science or sports 
what drives me at my core is just this uh, unrelenting passion for understanding why. You know, a lot of people ask what, but I, I always, I've always asked why. And uh, this was also true in, in high school. I think one great example is I always wondered why so many of my friends and neighbors and so on um, suffered from stroke and heart attack and died, whereas an equal number of my uh, friends were perfectly healthy. And after a couple of years, I, I kind of linked together the fact that those who were not healthy, cardiovascular-wise, mm. were all overweight and led a sedentary lifestyle, whereas those people who were healthy were always moving around and, uh, and ate smart. You know, they ate healthy. And so this stuck with me, and I was motivated to answer these questions. Uh, and finally, you know, during my career, I was able to, uh, to, to do that. But these are the sorts of things that, you know, that motivate me. Mm, absolutely amazing. And that, that curiosity seems that something that's incredibly pervasive inside you. Do you remember the moment that you began to pursue chemistry and biology and original basic as a career path? It may have been in elementary school, middle school, or even in university. Oh, yeah. I've, uh, I, I often think about this. And the reason I think about it is, I've never thought about it before, but after being awarded the Nobel Prize in medicine in 1998, uh, no less than thousands of people <laughs> would ask me this same question. And so I had an opportunity to think about it. But clearly, I was very young. I was about, I would guess, about 10 years of age when I decided that I, I had to pursue a career in science. And, and let me explain briefly. My mom and dad were completely uneducated formally. They were born in Italy, moved to New York, to, to New York City, to Brooklyn, where I, they got married there. I was born. Uh, they never went to school, not even the first grade in elementary school. And their mm -hmm. English was quite poor. So I had a tremendous handicap because I, my English was poor when I started in the first grade. But, you know, I persevered and was able finally to to climb out of that and, and then catch up to my uh, my classmates. So what interested me particularly in science, and this this began, it's very clear in my mind, it began as a result of watching fireworks displays mm. in Long Beach, Long Island, where we lived. Uh, every weekend or so, there would be a fireworks display, and my mom or my parents would uh, take take my brother and I to watch this. And I was uh, fascinated with it. I decided that, you know, I had to learn to make firecrackers and rocket fuel and all this sort of stuff. So at that very young age, I started reading about that, believe it or not, uh, to find out what I needed. And I realized that I needed gunpowder. I needed to, to make gunpowder. Well, to make a long story short, I I read, I asked my older friends to go to pharmacy stores, for pharmacies, to buy some of the ingredients I needed. In those days, it was easy to get those ingredients because the pharmacists actually compounded the prescription. They didn't just pour it out of a, a bottle, you know, from another drug company. They had, actually had to make everything. So I uh, got very interested in chemistry because of this reason. And for the same reason, I was also intrigued with biology because of other questions I would ask my uh, teachers 
in early and elementary school. Simple questions which would, would bother me. For example, how do our eyes see? How do our ears actually hear sound? You know, when I would talk to friends my age about this, you know, they would look at me and laugh and, and take everything for granted. But <laughs> I had to know exactly how these things uh, occurred. And so as a result, I developed a passion for the sciences and wanted to learn as much as possible, uh, both in school and uh, outside school. I mean, there were so many important questions to answer, I felt. And so I was highly motivated to uh, unravel the answers uh, as I proceeded onward. And that is why I chose a career in basic research. You know, I mean, I could have been a physician but I didn't want to because I wanted to do original research. I, I wanted to make discoveries instead of just taking care of people. And the other reason, John, is that I could never stand the sight of human blood and exposed bones. I knew that was not for me right from the beginning. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing about uh, really that curiosity and that really looking to answer questions. And science was this incredible uh, mechanism to really to understand in, in greater depths. You talked a little bit about uh, early on that uh, your English was poor. Uh, what challenges or adversity did you face to ultimately get to running a biomedical research laboratory and teaching graduate and medical students? I suspect it may have been easier to follow in your family footsteps. Uh, you can share with the audience some of the challenges you faced early on in life or even in university. Uh, that'd be great. Sure, yes. I, I had a huge amount of challenges. As I mentioned earlier, my English was, was poor when I entered uh, kindergarten and grade school. Mm -hmm. And the teachers actually called my parents into a meeting uh, shortly after the start of the first grade and told them, quite frankly, that my English was terrible and I'm going to have a great, I'm going to have great difficulty in learning and in doing any homework. So that uh, got my mom, you know, stimulated. She was upset at herself. So she immediately stopped speaking Italian at home and she learned very quickly mm. uh, to speak English. My dad was a carpenter. He was out most of the day, most of the days of the week. He, he just couldn't learn English. In fact, he learned a few words by the time I was 10 years old or so. So he could not help. But because of the language barrier, you know, because of the lack of education, my parents could not help me with anything in school mm. besides simple addition and subtraction. Yep. Because of my language barrier, I had difficulty in school. But I worked very hard. My mom uh, explained the problem to me. She kept apologizing, you know, that my English was poor, but she worked with me. I had tutors to help me, mm. uh, neighbors, and she was very much interested in my well-being and getting a good education. So that was a huge language barrier. The, my grades early on were terrible. I had to repeat uh, some courses, but very interestingly, the poor courses were in English, history, geography, mm. things like that. In the science courses, I always got the highest grade in the class. <laughs> Again, my passion for science. I didn't have a language barrier for science. You know, it came 
very naturally to me. And I really didn't have to understand every word I was reading. I could figure it out, you know, as I went along. Same thing with mathematics. But it was, it was, it was all the other courses that was giving me trouble. And so when I was in high school, I decided... There's no question about it. I want to go into, I want to go into a college where I can uh, get an education and training in chemistry. And the best school nearby in New York City was Columbia College. Mm. So I went to see my advisor or career counselor in high school in my junior year. And he said, uh, sorry, Lou, but you know, you'll never get into Columbia College with your lousy grades. So you need to apply, you know, to some state college or somewhere else. And I said, well, wait a second. All my, 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 my chemistry and math courses are all AA+. Plus. Uh, he said, yes, but your English and your history and your geography and your arts are all Cs and you have a couple of Ds. He said, you're not going to get into Columbia College with that kind of record. I'm sorry. And so I completely changed course and during my junior and senior year, I studied like there was no tomorrow, and I brought up all of those non-science uh, courses to A's, every single one. And so when I went for my interview, they granted me an interview at Columbia College. And of course, they asked me about the poor grades when I started high school. All of a sudden, I go from C's and D's to A's. I've always had A's in science. Uh, what's going on? In those days, they interviewed a lot of the incoming students. Today, we don't do that because of the thousands and thousands of, of, of uh, student applicants involved. And so to make a long story short, um, the, the fellow, I remember his name, Professor Lieberman, mm. he, uh, he, he liked my interview. He said, okay, We'll give it a chance. I will accept you, uh, but we're going to look at you very closely during your first year. And during your first year at Columbia, Mr. Ignaro, we're going to have courses in English and mm. history and art appreciation. But, you know, there was no problem. I grew up, and by the time I entered Columbia, I, I, I was good. I was sailing. Everything was good. So, I, I mean, those are some of the challenges I faced in my... Um, starting career, uh, right after I finished my schooling and medical school, graduate school, and so on, I started my career off in industry. <clears throat> because I'm not sure why, I, I thought maybe I wanted to, to play a role in helping to discover new drugs that could then be, you know, approved by the FDA and be useful to treat disease. Uh, but I noticed that during that during my stay in drug industry, after a couple of years, I was very dissatisfied because there were no teaching opportunities. And, you know, I love to teach. I've always liked to communicate my thoughts and teach. And so I made a decision four years into that industrial job to leave and go into academics. And that was very tricky. I was warned that that could be a disaster. So I worried about that. But, you know, that worked out okay. I got into academics. I did the kind of research I wanted to do instead of following the research that the drug company wanted me to do, right? Drug company wants you to work in a specific area to help develop a drug for the company. Mm -hmm. So you're not doing your own original research. 
I mean, you're doing what they want you to do. And at first that was okay, but after a while I didn't like it. And also I couldn't teach. So I went into academics and that worked out so well. That was the, the best move I, I, I ever made. And again, I faced my next challenge, which was really the last challenge. And that is when I got interested in studying and doing research on this molecule that maybe we'll have a chance to talk about called nitric oxide. This was such a new molecule. NO is a gas found in the Earth's atmosphere. It's a toxic gas in the Earth's atmosphere. And I found that it had pharmacological properties. That is that it could lower the blood pressure. It could do this. It could do that. And when I tried to publish this in peer-reviewed scientific journals, my papers my manuscripts would get rejected mm. and, and they and the 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 editors would say i'm sorry but you know we we have limited room to publish scholarly papers and we don't understand why you are uh, studying the effects in the body of this toxic gas which is present in the atmosphere so that was one problem the other problem i when you do research in the us in medicine of course in science you have to apply for research grants most of the grants in medicine in the biomedical sciences come from the National Institutes of Health, the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. These are government organizations, so it's a government grant. And I applied, my first two grants that I applied for were rejected mm. because the reasoning was, why should we, why should we, the government, spend taxpayers' money to support your research when we don't see clearly of what benefit it's going to have to humankind. And, you know, I guess, you know, I, I was very upset. Uh, I could see that, but eventually I was able to get a few papers published here and there in not so high peer reviewed journals. But the key is other scientists picked up on what I did. They published the work and so on. And it spread and spread. And finally, there were several dozen of us publishing really good work on nitric oxide. And, and that was good. We, we definitely climbed the threshold. And now we could submit papers to good journals and get grants to do our work. So th these were uh, challenges. And, you know, when I look back at it, I, I had a hell of a lot of challenges that I, I had to get by. Thank you for sharing such an amazing journey of really having, you know, that curiosity early on to ask questions and, and really excelling in some courses uh, early on in elementary school and really, uh, you know, the languages and uh, history classes, et cetera, really holding you back. And then really you found some, uh, some grit inside you to really to push forward. And then even once, uh, you know, you made the transition from uh, industry to the academic setting, really the, the first kind of, uh, you know, stuff that you put out there to the world in terms of papers and approaching, you know, uh, going after grants rejected and to, to find that, uh, uh, that inner strength is absolutely amazing. I'd love to shift gears just a little bit. You talked sure. about the passion for science. Uh, what experiences in your life uh, get you to pinnacle states, flow states and uh, experiencing flow? Let's see, where should I start? Well, you know, uh, what, what I've been doing in my career which is similar to, to many other careers, I'm sure that's not scientific, but, and this process of discovery demands um, very strict, specific, well thought out uh, plans. And each one is focused on answering critically important questions, whether they're raised by me 
or other scientists. And um, in, in my case, the overall picture was to find out what causes cardiovascular disease. I've got to give you a specific example in order to, you know, to answer uh, the question as it pertains to me. I was always interested in cardiovascular disease, as I mentioned earlier. Why does half the population get a heart attack and the other half does not? You know, this was very important to me. And so in developing strategic plans to answer these questions, I had to familiarize myself and read lots about the basic, to get to develop a basic understanding of factors that, that control cardiovascular function. Mm. And all that was good. I was reading and reading. I learned a great deal. But I have to say that although I was learning a lot, I was kind of bored. I found that something was, was missing. Uh, I mean, I, I knew that I had to know the facts, but the facts were not enough to accomplish uh, my mission. And what I had to do, this was very early stage, I realized that I had to think outside the box. In other words, I'm reading what other people are doing. I'm reading the research that other people did. So what do I do? Do, do, do I just follow in their footsteps and somehow find something new by going by following them? Or do I try to think outside the box and go somewhere where they haven't gone? And so uh, I often recall, I, I love quotes because the quotes apply to every one of us and every listener. But uh, I often recall the quote from Albert Einstein, who, who I thought he would was an incredible genius, but he said that logic will get you from point A to point B, but imagination will take you everywhere. Mm. And I've never forgotten that throughout my research. I, I've never forgot that. And, you know, in order to do this, it's very difficult to do, but to experience these flow states, I found that the most important thing I had to do was to focus. And believe me, focus it can be difficult. I mean, I think that one must have a passion for one for what one is focusing on. And without this passion, it's easy to get distracted. You, in other words, you can't stay focused. And uh, secondly, you have to believe in what you're doing, even though others might say you're crazy or wrong. And in my case, many people almost always told me, uh, not that I was crazy, but rather that I was wrong. And so, you know, if you truly believe that you're on the right track, you need to go for it, no matter what it takes, and no matter what anybody else uh, says. And that leads me to the third point, And that is that there are likely to be many falls along the way. Of course, that's true in any phase of life. But you must never give up. I mean, if I thought I was right, I never gave up. And, and uh, I remember uh, something that uh, uh, Nelson Mandela said. He had some really gr great statements, but this one applied, of all the statements, this one applied the most to me. And that is that uh, the greatest glory in living lies not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. And believe me, you have to do that, right? I mean, if you just let mm -hmm. something get you down and then you just pout and walk away and don't continue thinking or doing what you want to do, well, that's not good. You, you just have to fight back. You have to, you know, 
sort of put it in the back of your mind and just uh, move forward. And the ultimate results of everything I'm saying here, the ultimate results of my efforts and discovery was what? Well, was being awarded the Nobel Prize in medicine. And, and I attribute my rising to that pinnacle to my passion, drive, and motivation in answering questions that had not been answered before. Okay, not been answered before. This has always been my focus. Not the easiest thing to do, but this, and perhaps that's why I wanted to do it. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Uh, can you share with the audience, uh, you really talked about that state of incredible focus and passion and uh, really that imagination. Can you put it into words in terms of uh, your, your breathing, you know, your creativity, uh, as best you can. Sometimes it's hard to put into words or even yeah. that ability to think outside the box when you're in that state. Yeah, well, uh, I think uh, it feels great when I'm at my best, I have to tell you. And uh, uh, Feeling at my best creates, to me at least, a very um, restful emotional state. You know, it's like it's like taking Halcyon or some kind of a, a anxiolytic drug. It actually, uh, when I feel good, I feel completely relaxed, and I, I, how should I put it? I feel an aura of tranquility mm. that is somewhat difficult to explain. It's a very, very, very peaceful. And what I can tell you is that such a relaxed state calms my mind. It, it rids it from any low-hanging anxiety or other interfering problems uh, of the day. Uh, you know, some people may want to drink scotch and soda to achieve that, uh, that, that level of uh, tranquility. And sometimes I drink red wine at night to achieve that. But during the day, I just, I feel good about myself. You know, that's the one thing I do. I reward myself by feeling good about uh, myself. Also, you brought up breathing, which is quite interesting. Uh, it's been interesting to me for, oh, the past 10 or 15 years. But breathing is, is, is very important. If I take long, deep breaths, uh, by inhaling through my nose and let's say slowly exhaling through my mouth, much the same way that yogis breathe during yoga. One of the first things you learn when you're taking a yoga class, which I don't do too often because my, my body doesn't seem to want to move in those directions mm -hmm. with other people, uh, I find that breathing uh, is important. And if I take the time to think about it and, and breathe in this sort of way, uh, I feel extremely relaxed and I'm motivated. And right after those episodes of breathing, I, I can go back to my desk or walk around and, uh, you know, do some creative thinking regarding my, my research or writing a book or, or whatever. So uh, this, the breathing sort of opens my mind to more creative thinking. I don't know if that makes much sense, but it, it does relax me. No, that's beautiful. Uh, if I can sh shift gears just a little bit, uh, you talked a little bit about breathing. You talked a little bit about walking too as well. What are some of the small things that you do to maintain health, happiness, or wellness in your personal life? Life has its ups and downs. Can you share with the audience some of the small things that you do? Yeah, well, um, being in the health profession, I, I try to do what I'm supposed to do, although it did take me quite a few years in my developing career 
before I got to that that stage. Of course, you need willpower to do some of these things. But but some of the small things I do, well, um, there are many small things I do routinely. And, and I can say that so much of this is based on the molecule that I discovered in the late 1980s in our bodies, mm. which landed me the Nobel Prize in medicine. And I think it's important to mention that molecule. I've been trying for 20 years to make it a household word. Uh, you know, I mean, Every 10-year-old knows what Viagra is, and very few adults know what nitric oxide is. Mm. So I find that to be very troubling. And so I'm, I'm trying to make nitric oxide a, a, a household word. When I speak on podcasts or I'm in the process of writing a couple of books where, uh, you know, for the lay public, so, so they can better understand what this molecule is. But nitric oxide... Uh, often abbreviated NO, you hear me say NO once in a while, it's a very unique molecule. And during the past few years, I've called it the uh, miracle molecule. And here's why. Um, people on a healthy, balanced diet, okay, no special protein diet, carb diet, keto diet, you know, I, I have problems with all of those. I just believe in a healthy, balanced diet where people eat the right amount of foods from each of the food groups and, and pay attention to calories. In other words, a healthy, balanced diet with caloric restriction. Mm. Those kinds of diets have been shown now over the past 20 years to lead to a fairly substantial increase in the nitric oxide production in the body oh, compared wow. to those individuals who eat a lousy diet with saturated fat and excess salt and excess sugar. It's incredible, John. Saturated fat, salt, and sugar. Those three alone will decrease your nitric oxide production to dangerously low levels. This has been published, but it is in scientific journals. My goal in life for the remaining years I have is to get this published in newspapers and books to make people understand the problems associated with poor eating habits. So anyway, so you ask me, what do I do? I eat a healthy, balanced diet. Physical activity is just as important or more important. About 20 years ago, and since then, lots of work has been done to show that exercise increases nitric oxide production phenomenally if I may use a non-scientific descriptor. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and nitric oxide is very important in long-term health because nitric oxide controls our blood pressure, prevents heart attack, prevents stroke. This is why the Nobel Prize was awarded to, to those who made these discoveries, nitric oxide. So nitric oxide leads to a healthy lifestyle and prevents cardiovascular disease. We have known for thousands and thousands of years, everyone has said exercise is good for your health, but nobody knew why until about 20 years ago when it's been shown that nitric oxide right now is the key answer. Now, 20 years from now, another molecule may be found mm -hmm. that in addition to nitric oxide is important, but nitric oxide generation is important. And when you exercise, the more you exercise, the more your cardiac output goes up, the more blood that flows through your blood vessels, that force makes your blood vessels make a lot more nitric oxide. And for good reason, nitric oxide is a vasodilator. 
it widens the blood vessels to increase blood flow to your muscles, right? And in that way, you get more oxygen, you get more nutrients to your muscles. Well, the same nitric oxide is also protective against cardiovascular disease. And in a nutshell, that is why exercise is good for your health. Mm. The way you breathe is important too. We talked about that earlier. It's fascinating that a group of Swedish investigators uh, about 10 or 12 years ago showed that your nasal passages in your nose, the the nasal mucosal uh, membranes make lots of nitric oxide. And nitric oxide, you know, I want to indicate is a gas. It's not a liquid or a solid, but it is a gaseous molecule. So when your nose makes NO and you breathe in through your nose, what do you do? You take in the nitric oxide into your lungs. And what does that nitric oxide do? It dilates or widens the airways. So more air, therefore more oxygen gets into the lungs. Mm. One oxygen in the lungs. But then also it dilates the arteries, right? More blood gets into the lungs. So that more blood can take up the more oxygen. Everybody's happy. You've oxygenated your blood. And now that goes out to the circulation and, 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 and you feel great. You know, you have a healthy lungs, you have a healthy body, uh, and so on. You know, we inhale so many different microorganisms or pathogens, right? Mm-hmm. We inhale bacteria, viruses, parasites. There's all kinds of lung infections that come along. Look at influenza. We breathe in viruses that cause serious colds and, and, and viral influenza, much of which can kill people. And of course, we know one now, right? The coronavirus, which yep. is the worst one of all. But the nitric oxide func- that functions in the body when it gets into the lungs also kills these microorganisms. A lot of research has now been done to show that nitric oxide can kill and also inhibit the growth or spread of different viruses including the uh, coronavirus. So I just came across an idea about a year ago that uh, even before the coronavirus, but also right after it, that we should advocate that people, as much as they can, should inhale through the nose in order to get that nitric oxide from the nasal passages into the lungs. So that's why I take long, deep inhalations through the nose, And then, you know, you can breathe out your nose if you want. A lot of people breathe out through the mouth. And I think if you breathe out through your mouth, you should breathe out slowly through your mouth because the more slowly you breathe out through your mouth, that means the air in your nose is not moving, right? Because it's coming out of your mouth. And the more that the air remains stagnant in your nose, the more nitric oxide it's picking up from the nose. So then when you then subsequently inhale through your nose, you're going to get that much more into into the lungs. We know that when you breathe in, you feel great. I explained earlier that I have this aura of tranquility. I feel calm and I feel relaxed. Why is that? Well, some people think it's due to the oxygen that you're breathing in. Some people think it's due to elimination of CO2. and me, since you know I'm a big believer in nitric oxide, I, I have to believe that nitric oxide has something to do with it. And you know, every month that goes by, a new effect of NO in the body is discovered. So who knows what's going to be discovered down the line? 
And it, it's nitric oxide's been, been a very good uh, uh, molecule. So, but you know, I, I talked about dieting, I talked about physical activity, breathing in your nose. And I think that one good day a week of relaxation is so important. You know, I used to run when I was younger, of course, I used to run marathons, uh, big, you know, 42K marathons, mm-hmm. uh, or I should say 26 point, was it 26.2 miles? I think, and, you know, a scientist always thinks in meters instead of inches and, and, and kilometers instead of miles. But uh, I ran quite a few of those uh, and I, I, I felt great. I, I really did feel great doing those, generating all that, that nitric oxide, which was actually one of the reasons that I did that. But I always found that in doing sports, you had to pick one day a week to rest. It, it, the rest day was actually more important than the working day. Took me, it took me a lot of bruises to figure that out, but, but that's what I found. And regarding my work and what I do every day, I pick one day a week to relax without working. And the day I pick is Sunday, never on Sunday. And why is that? Well, you know, I'm a sports fanatic, so I love to watch football, baseball, basketball, whatever is in season uh, on Sunday. And now, of course, with the uh, with this damn coronavirus pandemic, I'm uh, fit to be tied because it's just not the normal sports season. And, and I guess the last thing I do in, in order to stay healthy, uh, I, I happen to be one of those people who believes in supplementation. Most physicians don't. And most physicians don't because they have not been trained in nutrition. You know, almost every physician that I know has never had a course in nutrition. They're exposed maybe to a few hours of of nutrition training in medical school. I mean, that's a zero. You might as well not do it. Uh, And they don't understand. They don't understand supplementation. Most physicians believe that if the FDA did not approve the supplement that you shouldn't take it. Well, if the FDA approved the supplement, it would be a drug and it would require a prescription mm-hmm. and cost a hundredfold more than it does now. So I, I know my stuff, of course, with supplementation. Unfortunately, the lay public does not. I try to help them, but I take supplements, but I take only those supplements that I know for a scientific fact boost the production and action of nitric oxide. Mm. And, and I can tell you what these are. I mean, there are very few of them, if, if that's okay. I mean, it, I'm not giving you trade names. I'm just telling you the ingredients, you know, that, that I take, like vitamin C and vitamin D, D as in dog. Yep. C and D are the two very, very important vitamins. In my humble opinion, you don't have to take any other vitamin. Vitamin C is a strong antioxidant, which raises nitric oxide. Uh, The very famous chemist Linus Pauling discovered that, and he wound up taking huge amounts for the rest of his life. And believe me, when he passed away, he had had a lot more hair in his head than I currently do. Mm. So vitamin C is, is, is quite good. Vitamin D is also very important for cardiovascular health. I take two amino acids. One is called arginine, which is not a household word. Mm -hmm. And the other one is called citrulline, which is not a household word. But in order for nitric oxide to be produced or manufactured in the body, it's got to be made from these two amino acids. 
These amino acids are present in the foods we eat. Every protein that you eat, whether it's fish, pork, or nuts, has lots of arginine, lots of arginine. So you're not taking in any medicines or chemicals. Citrulline is loaded in melons, watermelons, cantaloupes, honeydews, just loaded with citrulline. Again, it's a food. You can eat as much of those as you want and nothing's going to happen to you. And so people ask me, well, why do I have to buy these supplements when I can eat just lots of meat and lots of melons? The problem is to get enough arginine and citrulline in your body to really make a boost of NO, you'd have to eat probably two watermelons a day, mm. a couple of pounds of steak a day, or if you don't want to eat steak, you can eat fish, but you probably need a kilo of fish to provide the arginine. So here you can buy the capsules, everybody makes these things, and you have the active ingredients, right? And there's no calories. The other thing I want to emphasize is omega-3 fatty acids. Mm. I think that fish oil is so very important. I mean, my wife and I eat fish two days a week, okay? But every evening we take omega-3 fatty acid fish oil because uh, I've seen the effects of fish oil. I know what it does on the integrity of cells and how it, it boosts the production of nitric oxide. I mean, this has been shown by many, many people. And so I take that. And I believe in taking antioxidants because those are very important in protecting against inflammation and also boosting nitric oxide. And I could tell you that even though vitamin C is good and I take it routinely, the mo if anybody's interested, the strongest or most potent antioxidant is pomegranate. Mm. So it can be pomegranate fruit or pomegranate juice, both of which have a lot of sugar. So you do have to be careful. Or now what's available in the last few years is pomegranate extract. Scientists have figured out what it is in pomegranate that makes it so damn healthy. And it's just a variety of different polyphenols. And uh, now we know what they are. They're very stable. They can be extracted out of the fruit, put into a capsule, and you can take it like that. So, you know, that's what I do. And the final point in answering is a long answer to your question, but a very important one. At the end of every day, in the evening, with dinner, I enjoy a couple of glasses of red wine. Mm. And because of that, I think I'm going to live to 100. Absolutely amazing. Uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, the, those insights related to breathing, uh, balanced diet, uh, physical activity, uh, relaxation, and supplementation. I'd love to shift gears just a little bit. And you touched a little bit upon uh, books. Uh, what initiatives or projects connected to health and wellness are you currently working on that are related to your tremendous body of original basic research? First, I need to tell you that about six years ago or so, I officially retired from my academic responsibilities at UCLA, a school of medicine in, in Los Angeles, uh, because I was so busy uh, doing everything else. I mean, the, the Nobel Prize uh, just becomes so demanding. So I had to make a decision. Do I want to continue with my research? You know, which is pretty damn good up to this point, I thought. Or do I want to do something else? And I decided I wanted to do something else. And what was that something else? To go out, travel globally, to 
tell people about the work that I did, but more importantly, the work that everybody else has done since uh, to show how healthy nitric oxide is mm. and, and to advocate the things you need to do um, to, to maintain the production of nitric oxide, such as healthy diet, physical activity, and, and supplements. So w- what I do is I collaborate with a number of different um, uh, pharmaceutical companies, actually, and also private institutions where they invite me to travel globally to talk about uh, the application of the nitric oxide research to to better health, to healthier lifestyle and longevity. And I've been doing quite a bit of that and feel good about that. The other thing I do is I'm on the scientific advisory board uh, of uh, uh, a large and prestigious nutrition company called Herbalife Nutrition. Mm -hmm. They've been around for quite some time. and I started with them, I think, in 03, when a whole new leadership took over the, uh, um, the company. And what I do there, in addition to helping them design some of their cardiovascular uh, supplements, what I do and what I enjoy is I travel globally. Right now, it's by Zoom. <laughs> and, and after the coronavirus pandemic, I'll travel once again uh, globally to talk to literally tens of thousands of customers about health. So it's not just about selling products. In fact, that's like the last five minutes of the presentations. It's about leading a healthy lifestyle. It's about eating healthy, eating a balanced um, nutrition, focusing on on caloric restriction. It's talking about exercise, what kinds of exercise you can do, should do, don't have to do in order to maintain health and, and, and so on. So those are, those are really the core projects I'm working on. Uh, I'm also just wrote a book which is now being looked at by agents to see what agent we can find who will then take it to the publisher. I had so many steps involved. It's unbelievable. You know, it was very easy to publish a scientific article, but to publish a book, especially if you want it to be a New York Times bestseller, is a <laughs> very different course, let mm-hmm. me tell you. And I'm sure you know. But anyway, so I'm writing a book, and this book that should be published early next year is called Dr. No, the N-O for, uh, the no for nitric oxide, of mm. course. And uh, in, in that book, that's really a memoir. So all the things that we've been talking about today, I'm actually going to have in the book. That's why it was not too difficult to, to answer some of your questions, because this memoir is going to be about me. Uh, how did, why did I decide to do this? When did I decide to do that? What motivates me? What did I discover? People also want to know what the Nobel Prize is. So I describe, you know, what the Nobel Prize is, what I did to deserve the Nobel Prize, and on and on. So that's one book. The other book I'm in the process of writing as we speak. And that, the title of that book, uh, that's about as far as I've gotten is the title. Well, no, really. I've, I've written a few chapters, but the title is going to be The Miracle Molecule, or, yeah, I'm going to call it The Miracle Molecule, and maybe the miracle molecule, nitric oxide. But I truly believe it's a miracle molecule, even though we haven't talked about all of its effects. Uh, it, it truly is 
is miraculous. And so I, I, I want to write a popular science book so that people could, could have something to talk about. You know, when they go to a cocktail party mm. or to dinner or they get together, oh, did you know this about that? Did you know this about that? And so on. So uh, it's fun to write. It's, it's more difficult to write than a strictly scientific book. Um, I've got to put on a, a different hat, uh, but, but I'm having fun. Absolutely amazing. Can you share with the audience just a little bit more about the importance of nitric oxide from a health perspective? Uh, 1992, nitric oxide was proclaimed molecule of the year. In 1998, you won the Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine, which absolutely must have been amazing. Uh, as part of your answer related to the importance of nitric oxide, uh, can you share with the audience their ability to change the trajectory of their health? Sure, sure. I, I think uh, nitric oxide you know, the field, I'm not talking about the people, but the actual subject itself certainly deserved recognition by the, the uh, Nobel uh, Committee. Let me just start by saying that, um, you know, I told you earlier, I think that nitric oxide is the miracle molecule of life. And I'm going to try to explain that briefly in, in this in answering your, your question. But I want to start off first with some numbers because I find that listeners and viewers, people I talk to love numbers and they like to talk to other people about numbers. Things like, you know, the average adult body is composed of approximately 40 trillion cells. You know, that's a large number. And we have about 100 billion nerves. And if you stretch them all out end to end, it would uh, have a length of 90,000 miles. Well, I mean, how's that possible? Well, we have 100,000 miles of arteries, veins, and capillaries. Again, if you would string them side by side. Mm. <clears throat> uh, our heart, which we take for granted, beats about 2 billion times with a B uh, in a lifetime and pumps 60 million gallons of blood mm. during a lifetime. I mean, that's I. I'm a scientist. I'm a well-trained scientist, and I find that still to be mind-boggling, even though I can explain it physiologically. Well, the key thing here is that nitric oxide. Now we've known in the last thirty years, nitric oxide controls much of this. Mm. Nitric oxide is made in in all the cells that line the insides of our blood vessels. These are called endothelial cells, which I notice in the press is becoming more and more popular. But these endothelial cells that line all the arteries and veins and capillaries make nitric oxide. And they have to uh, continue to make nitric oxide at all times. Otherwise, our blood pressure will rise and we'll get lots of uh, blood clotting that we don't want, and that mm. will stroke and heart attack. So we've got to keep those arteries uh, healthy. And as I said, some of the effects of nitric oxide that were discovered is what led to the Nobel Prize, and that is that NO protects us against hypertension, stroke, and heart attack. That's the easiest way to say it without getting into uh, a detail. It maintains adequate blood flow to all the organs, right? I talked about exercise, increasing nitric oxide. And in the brain, very, very important. I always tell uh, my, my, I used to tell my students when I had students that the brain has more nitric oxide in it than does the rest of the body. Mm. But yet we do not 
understand why. We only know one role of nitric oxide in the brain, and this is very important. Nitric oxide functions to improve memory, learning, and information recall. Mm. Nitric oxide fluctuations are also what appears to be responsible for dreaming in people. If people have bad dreams or recurrent dreams, this may have to do with fluctuating levels of nitric oxide. And who knows? There's no evidence for it, but nitric oxide in the brain may also be what makes you you know, uh, tranquil or feel calm mm. or feel relaxed. We just don't know those things. And here's another important function. And this is when I picked up the word miraculous function. Believe it or not, nitric oxide is the mediator. In other words, it's what causes erectile function and sexual arousal in men and women. Mm. And we made that discovery in 1990. Before that, the neurotransmitter, the, the, the chemical, the signaling molecule that produced penile erection was unknown. That's why there were no drugs available to treat 10% of the male population of the world suffering from erectile dysfunction. We discovered that nitric oxide was that signaling molecule. Okay, and guess what happened six years later? Based on my work, Viagra was marketed. The mm. Pfizer pharmaceutical company always says that. They always acknowledge that it was because of my work that led them to figure out, oh, my God, we have such a drug. They were developing such a drug to lower the blood pressure, actually, but, but they had to raise the dose of, these, of this developing drug to lower the blood pressure, and they noticed the side effects of penile erection in the males <laughs> mm. who were being tested in the hospital. So they stopped developing the drug. It was too embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And then when my work came along a few years later, they realized what they had. And so they put the FDA, put it on fast track and the drug was developed and uh, as sildenafil with the trade name of Viagra. And, you know, because my work made it possible, uh, at least among scientists, I have been given the acronym of the father of Viagra. Mm. And, you know, I don't mind that acronym at all. I, I kind of think it's humorous, but when my mom was alive, she was very disappointed every time she heard that. And she would always tell me, son, why don't you tell them to stop saying that? <laughs> <laughs> and then um, so and now we come to the next part of this miraculous drug. And we're in the middle of it now. I can't say too much about it because clinical trials are in progress, mm. but the early results look incredibly promising, John, and that is that mm. inhaled nitric oxide gas is now in five big clinical trials mm. to treat and prevent COVID-19. And the early results were just published a couple of days ago where pregnant women with serious COVID-19, not knowing if they would make it, went to the clinic uh, under special care, of course. They were given inhaled nitric oxide, and then they ended the trial. Why? Because every one of those women were cured. They went home. They delivered their babies. The babies were perfectly normal, and those pregnant women who had not yet delivered babies because they were early in their pregnancy are doing quite well at home. 
you know, that brings tears to my eyes. Mm. To think that nitric oxide, you know, could do this is, is this, you know, what more can you ask for? So I've got to call it the miracle molecule of mm. life. Absolutely. Absolutely amazing. And uh, just a, uh, just an incredible journey of uh, just early on in life and being that, that kid to ask questions that in uh, uh, going through, uh, you know, really finding that next level within terms of your education that, you know, the spots where they're kind of weighing you down, you're able to find that next year and then, then moving into industry for a bit and then moving into, you know, kind of that academic, academic setting and really those early kind of opportunities to kind of put yourself out there. There was re- rejections and finding that internal drive, that, uh, that inner grit uh, is absolutely amazing. And only what you talked about is believing. You had this, this, this feeling, this certainty, this intuition inside you that uh, kind of uh, this led you on this uh, remarkable journey. And now being able to give back on some of the world's uh, you know, you know, biggest problems that we're facing today. Uh, is there anything else you want to add to, uh, uh, just as kind of a, a summative there? Well, I think, I think, you know, the, the two things, the key messages I have really are, one, uh, you really must never, never give up. Uh, you, you have to have a passion for what you're doing, and no matter what goes wrong, I think that you must um, never give up. I mean, I've learned that from my long and uh, arduous journey. If you believe in something, go after it, no matter what others uh, may tell you. Never allow failure to keep you from your ultimate goals. I mean, I would have stopped years ago if I let that happen. And it's it's not easy to do. And more than that, it, re, it requires a passion uh, for what you are doing. I mean, I've always believed that passion drives motivation. Motivation drives innovation, uh, right? And innovation leads to ultimate success. And that's not true just in my field of, of science. It really uh, holds true in other fields. And the last part is as I've mentioned several times before, think outside the box. And I I encourage everybody to please just take a moment, even if you have to walk outside all by yourself in the park or whatever, think outside the box. Don't listen to what everybody else may be doing. Go where no one has gone before. You know, it's, it's really easy to follow in the footsteps of others who can't do that. But it is far more difficult to create those footsteps yourself. Uh, that's what you need to do. I mean, you need to lead the way, stay in front, don't follow someone else, because you'll remain behind. And so, as my last quote of the day is my favorite. I recall one from Ralph Waldo Emerson many years ago, who said, do not go where the path may lead, go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. So that's what I'll leave you with. Absolutely amazing. And, and Lou, where can people find you if they want to uh, uh, stay tuned for your work uh, and keep track of uh, uh, you know, your upcoming books, et cetera? It sounds like uh, you're very involved with uh, uh, research that's coming to the forefront in short order. Where can people find you? Yeah, well, uh, what I, being a scientist, and I notice that most scientists are not really big on, uh, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. I mean, I have my wife doing those things for me because I can't do it. But you can always Google my name and get into my Facebook and Instagram. And the way to do that is just Dr. Lewis Ignaro. It's DR, uh, I think, period, then Lewis, period, Ignaro. Uh, and once you, once you Google that, you, you'll be able to go to the 
to the various links. Also, you can always just Google my name, period. And I have uh, a couple of times a week lately, uh, different kinds of news media stories, interviews, uh, comments that I make about uh, COVID-19, uh, comments I may make about our leader, and other comments. And you can always find them by Googling uh, my name. You should have no difficulty whatsoever. Lou, thank you for your leadership, your words, your speak engagements, and all the happiness oxygen you bring to the world. And a tremendous thank you to all the listeners. As always, this has been your host, John Tuckums. You have made it to the end of the podcast. It's your host, John Tuckums. I want to take this moment to sincerely thank you. I'm incredibly grateful for the time you're taking to invest in your life. And if you gain something valuable from this episode and want to give me value somehow, I would tremendously appreciate it if you went to Apple Podcasts, iTunes. If you have an Apple product where you listen to this podcast and leave this show a review, you are free to send me a message or email. Contact information is in the description below. Thank you again for listening and thank you for your contributions in helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen.